this morning. It's uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, you can find that on page 966. Second Corinthians chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 13 and read on into chapter 5. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe... And so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words. Lord, often we, we hear the, the stories from Paul, Lord, and we think to ourselves, I, I cannot be that bold. And yet perhaps what we should be asking ourselves, perhaps what I should be asking myself, why not? Lord, we pray that, Lord, as you said here in this text, that you've given us your spirit as a guarantee of the promises that you've made. Lord, we pray that, Lord, you would remind us that you would empower us to be bold, to have courage, Lord, to live out our life with courageous decisions each day. Lord, that we may have an impact for you. Lord, we want to please you, as Paul said. Not because we gain favor with you, but because we love you. 
We love you for who you are. We love you for what you've done for us. We thank you for all these things, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. In, uh, in praying for the S family, I mean, one of the things that we recall, that we should recall, is the kind of boldness that it takes to sell everything that you have <laughs> and leave and go to a place completely unfamiliar to you for something that is greater than you. And so... We wonder, what, it, what is it that keeps them going? I'm, I'm reading um, a classic missionary biography, To the Golden Shore. Uh, it's about Adoniram Judson, who is one of the five, a group of five of the first missionaries sent from America uh, to various regions. They end up in Burma. But um, in writing to, he was single, and he writes to the, uh, John Hasseltine, who would become his future father-in-law, and he basically is asking if he can court his daughter Anne with the intention of marrying her. And the portion of that letter in the biography, basically, uh, Judson says, would you consent to basically never see her again? Would you consent to send her to the other side of the world where she'll face danger, she'll face persecution, most likely she'll die? When's the wedding? That kind of boldness to strike out, to know that when they got on that boat, it was a one-way trip, and they just weren't coming back. There wasn't Skype to call back home. There wasn't, there wasn't a plane they could jump on and in 24 to 36 hours be home. There wasn't a phone to pick up. They just left and went. Can you imagine the kind of boldness that that takes? Some of us won't send back the wrong order that we get at a restaurant. <laughs> Do you want to be bold for Jesus? Do you want to have the courage to do what's right, to obey the Lord no matter what, to refuse to compromise holiness for the sake of being accepted by others or for the sake of getting ahead in your career? Do you want the boldness to to share the gospel without the fear of man? Of course you do. What Christian doesn't? I've never met a Christian that said, you know what I really want is I'd like to be more timid in my life. I'd like to be weaker. I'd like to be cowardly. No. We want to be bold. We want to have the courage of conviction to live and to speak according to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. No Christian wants to be Peter on the night of Jesus' arrest, do they? Cowering, denying they know Christ. No Christian wants to be Peter in Antioch either. You remember the scene in Galatians 2? Peter is so scared of what the Jewish leaders will think that he won't have dinner with Gentiles. No Christian, want, no Christian wants to be those Peters. Every Christian wants to be Peter on the day of Pentecost, don't they? 
testifying to Jesus' death and resurrection in the face of mockery? Every Christian wants to be Peter before the Sanhedrin, hearing the command to stop preaching and the threats and saying this, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Isn't that true? Don't you want to be bold like that? This is the question and answer session of the sermon. Don't you want to be bold like that? How does that happen? Is it just according to, you know, some people are wired to be bold and other people are wired to be that? Or is there some way that every single person in this room, no matter where you are, no matter what your proclivities one way or another, that you can grow and I can grow in boldness? I believe that the text before us actually answers that question. What would it look like? How do we cultivate boldness in our lives? Did you notice the statements of boldness along the way? Chapter 4, verse 16, so we do not lose heart. Chapter 5, verse 6, so we are always of good courage. Chapter 5, verse 8, yes, we are always of good courage. He keeps coming back to it over and over again. And what is it? How is it that Paul does not lose heart? How is it that he is of good courage? How is it that he's always of good courage? I think the answer is summed up in what he says at the, in, in chapter 5, verse 7. We walk by faith, not by sight. I actually think that is the key to why Paul is so bold, and it is the key for how you and I can be bold. Now, we're not just talking about the boldness to sell everything you have and go somewhere else. We're talking about the boldness to not give in to the fear of man, in particular, if your parents, the fear of the little man, in your house, trying to do everything you can just to please them and make sure they're not upset with mom and dad, the boldness to actually correct, the boldness to teach, the boldness to confess your own sin when you sin, the boldness in your workplace to not compromise, the boldness with your neighbors to not for 10, 12, 15, 25 years leave your conversation at small talk. The boldness the boldness to live for Jesus, the boldness to speak for Jesus will grow as we walk by faith and not by sight. Paul says that's how he does. I mean, you remember what Paul said about his experience so far, right? He's been afflicted so much that he's despaired of life itself. He felt like he was living under the sentence of death. And then he says this in chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, we're afflicted in every way, we're perplexed, we're persecuted, we're struck down. I mean, this is not easy territory. Nobody has to be told, hey, be bold, keep going when everything's great. You don't have to be bold at your family reunion if everybody values Christianity. You don't have to be bold in your workplace if it's populated by Christian folk. And yet Paul keeps going. He keeps preaching. He doesn't hold back. He doesn't lose heart. 
How is that? Well, he looks to the eternal and not the transient. He walks by faith and not by sight. Now, if you're unfamiliar with that language, walking by faith, to walk is a metaphor in the Bible that speaks of how one lives the whole of life, how a person, what makes a person tick, what establishes their mindset, how it is that they determine decisions and actions. And Paul says he walks by faith. His life and his actions and his willingness to preach the gospel and his willingness to correct what is wrong, it's not determined merely by if the circumstances are right. It's determined by what he believes, and particularly the one in whom he believes. He walks by faith, not by sight. So taking that as the key to what Paul's saying of himself, we would apply it to ourselves this way and say that this is the main point we need to wrap our minds around. Bold Christians walk by faith, not by sight. Bold Christians walk by faith, not by sight. Let's look at what the faith that produces boldness looks like. Number one, faith rests in the gospel. Now, most Christians understand that the beginning of the Christian life is marked by faith, don't we? So, Ephesians 2 says, For we are saved... You have been saved by grace through faith. And that most famous of all verses in John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world, meaning God loved the world in this way, that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes. Now, for some of you, quite frankly, this morning, that may be new information because you've always thought of the Christian life about doing and not doing, that this is what Christians are actually on about. What Christians are on about is to get everybody doing the right things and not doing the wrong things. But that's actually not the case. Because the problem is we all do the wrong things. And we all have determined in our hearts to just keep doing our own things and doing the wrong things. And that's just the way we would go forever were it not for the grace of God in Jesus. None of us can improve our spiritual state. Jesus has done it all. He lived a righteous life, obeying God perfectly in our place, and He died as our substitute, bearing our sin in our place and satisfying God's wrath, His anger, His judgment against our sin. And He was raised on the third day. That resurrection was the public proclamation that Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient for all sin, vindicating Him as the Son of God who can save And the Bible tells us that everyone who turns to Him, turning away from their sin, turning away from trying to make their own way to God, and turning to Jesus Christ alone in faith, they are saved. And so if you've always thought that basically what Christianity is is just the attempt to get everybody obeying the Ten Commandments, and you've been doing your best to obey the Ten Commandments, Friend, the Bible would also tell us that you will never be able to fully obey the Ten Commandments. Not at the level at which it matters. At the level of the heart. But the good news is that Jesus Christ has died for you. So that your sin might be forgiven. That you might be made right with God. And if you will turn to Him today, in faith, right now, where you sit... Confess your sin to Him. Trust in Jesus. He will save you. 
And if you have more questions, any of us who are believers would love to talk to you about what it means to be a Christian after the service. I would love to. Now, we all know that the Christian life, many of us know the Christian life begins that way by turning to Jesus in faith. But faith isn't merely a key that unlocks the door into the Christian life. Faith is also where the door takes us for the rest of our lives. It's, it's the room that we inhabit. Faith is not the defibrillator that, boom, gets the heart going. It's the actually, it's the heartbeat that keeps going and going and going and going. That's what Paul's talking about when he says in verses 13 and 14, this spirit of faith. We have the same spirit of faith according to what has writ been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak knowing that He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into His presence. Now, he's echoing, his quote here is from Psalm 116. And in Psalm 116, the writer is suffering. But his suffering will not silence him. He calls out to God. The psalmist calls out to God for deliverance. And he even calls out within his society to say, all men are liars. He's still, he's condemning the sin, and he's calling out to God for deliverance. And likewise, Paul is suffering. I've already, we've already talked about that. He's carrying around the dying of Jesus in his body. But it doesn't silence him. He says, we also believe, and we also speak. Why? Paul rests in the gospel. He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus. Jesus' resurrection not only proclaims that our forgiveness is secure, it's also a promise that we will be raised. 1 Corinthians 15 says that the resurrection, that the raised, the risen Christ is a first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That means there's more to come. There's more resurrection coming. There's more life coming. And when He, when he raises us from the dead, He will bring us into God's presence. Literally, He will present us into God's presence. I have a friend who once said, I think well, that on that last day, many people will simply be present, but Christians will be presented. And so, if you will, on that last day, Jesus will bring us to the Father and say, Father, these are the ones that you gave me. I purchased them with my blood. They have come to me by faith, and I have brought them safely home. And then Christ will turn to us and say, enter now into your eternal joy. And it is faith in that truth that makes Paul bold, because that day is secure. Nothing about his affliction, nothing about the opposition, even if they should kill the body, nothing will change that. When that is fixed in our hearts, when the, when the reality of the, our resurrection, because of Jesus' resurrection, is firmly fixed in our hearts, how much does that shrink the pain of the rejection of non-Christians? How much does it change what we are willing to endure in this life when we know that the life to come is secured? 
that being the outcast at school doesn't sound all that bad right now compared to what I'm promised. The disappointments of ministry, the hardships of serving others, they lose their power to make us lose heart. They become impotent. That's why we must do, as Jack Miller first said, and as Jerry Bridges uh, popularized by saying, we must preach the gospel to ourselves every day. Wake up. Go to sleep. Walk through every moment, remembering that our sin is forgiven, that we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave Himself for us and was raised from the dead and will raise us. How would that change your life? How would that change the interaction you shied away from this last week? How would that change dinner with an unbelieving friend? How would that change helping a fellow Christian walk through suffering? How would that change helping a fellow Christian who seems stuck in sin? changes everything, doesn't it? It changes everything. Faith rests in the gospel. The second thing we see as we just keep going is that faith works for the glory of God, for God's glory. I listened to a podcast recently, and the title of the episode was The Sin of Building a Platform. Now, it doesn't mean like a physical platform like this. Building a platform basically means working to gain an audience, to gain a following. So it works so that people will want to hear what you have to say. This is a big idea for people who want to publish books in the, in the Christian culture, if you will, in that non, non-fiction stage. If you're going to get published, publishers are very interested that you have some kind of platform already on social media or on blogging or something else. You build a platform, you build an audience, you build a following. Now, the reality is sometimes God simply gives a platform to those who are faithful. He opens people's ears to their speaking and writing and uses particular men in extraordinary ways simply because, not because of the man or his gifts, but because of God's truth, the faithfulness and God's truth coming through that one. Other times, men try to build their own platform, don't they? They kind of take the blueprints of Babel and run with it. Let us make a name for ourselves, they said in Genesis 11. But not Paul. This is what Paul said. I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. Paul's ministry is not about fame for himself. It's not about gathering a crowd for himself. His life, his ministry is about working to glorify God, which is why he can write to the Corinthians so boldly and say, whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God, where he writes to the Colossians, no matter what you do, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the believing and the speaking that he's done is not to prove himself. When he says, we also believe and, we also, and so we speak, It's not to prove himself. He says in verse 15, it is all for your sake. So that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. 
Now, Paul does not gauge success in ministry by the number of people who are converted. Do you understand that? Paul does not gauge success on the number of people who are converted. But it would be complete foolishness to think that Paul's not interested in a large number of people being converted. He is very interested in that. It seems that sometimes in, in circles, in some circles, we can get so against the notion of gauging success by the number of people who, con- who are converted that somehow apathy slips in the back door and starts taking over as to whether we even care if people are converted because we don't gauge success by that. What exactly are we working for then? We want grace to extend to more and more people so that thanksgiving increases and more people are there around the throne of God giving glory to the Lamb and glory to, the, to God and saying salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb who is on His throne. Don't you want that? Do you? Paul is working for the glory of God, the one who wants to build his own platform to be, you know, well thought of by children or by uh, society, to be sought after, to be accepted and loved by everyone at school or work, to be indispensable to others, the one who's living their life in hopes of a great eulogy at their funeral, which is really strange because you never hear your own eulogy. I mean, I don't know that you hear your own eulogy. How about that? But people who just long to, to, to have a great eulogy at their funeral, do you know what those people will do? The ones who want to be sought after, the ones who want to be heard, the ones who want to be indispensable, do you know what they become? Slaves to other people. Slaves to the opinions of others. They'll shape their words, they'll shape their decisions, they'll shape their actions based on what others think. They'll essentially become politicians. They'll be over the moon when everyone loves them. And they'll be crushed by every sign of rejection by someone else. Even the perception of rejection by others will crush them. They'll be trapped, won't they? Proverbs 29. The fear of man lays a snare. But the one who works for God's glory escapes that snare and is bold, is willing to stand for Christ and speak for Christ and live for Christ no matter the cost because self is swallowed up in the pursuit of God's glory. Self, if you will, is denied. So faith rests in the gospel. Faith works for God's glory. And then faith sees suffering God's way, verses 16 and 17. Faith doesn't pretend that suffering doesn't happen. Faith doesn't pretend that suffering doesn't hurt. It doesn't eliminate suffering from your life. It doesn't... But faith sees suffering 
God's way. Look at what he says. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So on the outside, things waste away, don't they? Bodies break down, minds wear out, eyesight and hearing fade. And as ailments increase, the time it takes to recover from those ailments also increases. Uh, Susan's uh, stepfather was a boxer at one time, and he trained boxers up in his barn. He's still got the bag hanging up there. And he's fallen off the roof trying to fix things, and he's done all manner. He's beaten his body to a pulp through the years. And now he just lives in constant pain. The body's just wasting away. But what Paul's speaking of is not something that everybody over 35 can just go, ha, 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 I've got some of that. Paul's wasting away is, quite frankly, at the hands of other people. Other people are beating him to a pulp. Other people are whipping him and stoning him and imprisoning him. The outer self for Paul is wasting away in a different way than it is for us. But then he says... On the inside, he's being renewed day by day, increasing in spiritual strength. His joy in Christ is growing. Isn't that something? Now, if you just look at that on first glance and you only read that one verse, you might think these two things just kind of happen simultaneously. They happen separate from one another, but they're both happening. But if you keep reading and you look at the first word in verse 17, what's the first word in verse 17? For. And what does the word for mean in the, in the, in the letters? It means because. That's what it most often means. Our outer self is wasting away. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed by, day by day. Well, why, Paul? How's that happen? For. This light momentary affliction, the outer body wasting away, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That preparing is the renewed day by day. It means to cultivate. It means it's producing it. Suffering is not a magnet. People, I mean, you know, the, the song, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, that's ridiculous. Sometimes what doesn't kill you just leaves you in a coma, all right? The, the, the fact is, is that so, if suffering were a magnet, do you know, to God, do you know how many unbelievers there'd be in the world? Zero. Suffering is not a magnet, that automatically brings one to God. It is only as we walk through suffering by faith, seeing suffering God's way, that renewal comes. And as we do that, do you know what's popping up in the field of heaven? An eternal weight of glory. 
that's far beyond comparison. That is the word hyperbole. It is, it is just overblown, this weight of glory. You, it feels like a tornado is ripping apart the trailer park of your life. But faith knows it is the stiff wind of the Spirit bringing sanctification as we walk by faith, not by sight. Faith sees suffering God's way. How different would our journeys through affliction and pain and suffering be if we saw it with those eyes? Eyes that look to God for grace to grow. Eyes that seek spiritual renewal. Eyes that look beyond this life to the glory that awaits. That's what Paul says in Romans. That's what Paul is doing in Romans 8.18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Not even affliction, opposition, or persecution can stop the one with these eyes of faith. No matter where the suffering comes from. Now, if Paul sees the threat of death as a light, momentary affliction... How much more should we see a bad boss that way? How much more should we see a contrary family member that way? How much more should we see rebellious children that way? How much more should we see a deserting friend that way? How much more should we see hostile non-Christians that way? Light, momentary. It's, it's, a, it's a splinter. It's a stubbed toe. It's a jammed finger. And the weight of the glory that's to come is beyond anything I can imagine. I can't even paint you a picture that would be grand enough. Faith sees suffering God's way. Which means you can be bold, can't you? Because even if suffering comes because you're preaching the gospel, because you're sharing Christ with your friend, because you're living with integrity in your workplace, that even if suffering comes, you know that even that is sent into your life by God to prepare you, to prepare glory, to renew you. Faith rests in the gospel. Faith works for God's glory. Faith sees suffering God's way. Faith groans for full redemption. Faith doesn't look through, we don't look through the eyes of faith and say, oh yeah, everything's great here on earth, isn't it? It's great. Why would we ever want to leave this place? No. Chapter 5, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by, what? by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God 
who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. We live in tents. Tents are not permanent structures. Tents are great for camping over the weekend if you're below a certain age. (laughs) Tents are great for backpacking across Europe. Tents are great on the living room floor with your kids. We don't, we're not meant to live in tents. You think about it as Paul, a Jew, is thinking about tents. He's thinking about, I mean, think about the wandering and the tents that Israel had. They were never meant to wander forever. They were never meant for that. They were meant for a place, a permanent place. Faith isn't settled here. Faith sings that hymn, This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. Faith, and faith groans. It doesn't just sing that, it groans. Did you notice he says it twice? In this tent, verse 2, we groan. Verse 4, while we are, are still in this tent, we groan. We feel the pain of this place and we long for ultimate, final, permanent redemption. We long for the day that mortality is swallowed up by life. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, isn't it? When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying what that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. And death is swallowed up in victory. Faith groans for that. Groans for it. And the guarantee that that day is coming, Paul says, is the fact that God has sealed us and is indwelling us by His Holy Spirit. Verse 5, He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Paul also puts this together in Romans chapter 8. We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. But how does this increase your boldness? How does groaning for that increase your boldness? Well, That groaning is a continual reminder that no matter what happens to this body or in this body or how long this body lasts before it finally gives out, there is coming something greater, permanent, in the heavens, made not with human hands, made by God's own hands. God will have the last word on these bodies. At the voice of the Son of Man, the dead will be raised. Some to the resurrection of life, and some to the resurrection of judgment. But it will be glorious, won't it? Aren't you looking forward to that day? Where it's not even just that there'll be no more pain and no more crying and no more death which is wonderful. 
all of that will be absent because sin will be absent. And its curse will be no more. And apart from that, the glorious thing is that as Adam and Eve used to walk with the Lord in the cool of the day in bodies that were ultimately going to die, we, we know, we will walk with the Lord in the cool of an eternal day in the new heavens and the new earth and He will dwell with us and we will dwell with Him and night shall be no more. Faith groans for full redemption. Finally, faith aims to please God. He speaks about we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. He says, we walk by faith, not by sight. And then verse 8, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body, we groan for it after all, and at home with the Lord. So, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. Paul's aim, Paul's ambition, the cherished goal of Paul's life is to please God. Not in the sense of trying to earn God's approval so he'll end up in heaven, but the way a son just wants to please his father. He already has a relationship to God through Jesus Christ. And this is saying he wants the smile of God on the way he's preached Jesus and lived for Jesus and served Jesus. And he wants to because the day of evaluation is coming. Verse 10, for we almost appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. The judgment seat would be where governors would sit and they would hear cases and they would make their decisions about those cases. Paul, in fact, in Corinth had been before a judgment seat, the judgment seat of Gallio in Acts chapter 18. But there's a greater judgment seat awaiting. And it's not Caesar's. He's not concerned about Caesar's judgment seat in Rome. He's not concerned about the court of public opinion. He is looking forward to the judgment seat of Christ. There, our lives, our service will be revealed as it is, whether worthwhile or worthless. And we will receive what is due. Consider how bold you might be if that day was always in your mind. If the judgment seat of your family members paled in comparison, if the judgment seat of public opinion was virtually null and void, and not even virtually, imagine if it was completely null and void, Imagine if the only thing you thought about is what will bring glory to God. Faith, remember Hebrews 11, believes that God is and that God is a rewarder of those who seek Him. Don't get caught up in thinking it's bad to consider rewards. You should consider rewards. Jesus is talking about them all the time in the Gospels. What will our reward be? Consider how bold we would be if we thought of that day. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, 
With me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Friends, so long as we live in a fallen world, the court of public opinion will always be against us. Do you know that? Are you hoping to sway, back, sway the court of public opinion to somehow be approving of the preaching of sin and righteousness and judgment? It's just not going to happen. There may be a slight veneer of liking biblical morality at one time or another, but you get underneath and you get in the homes of those who like the veneer in culture, and you see that we just don't like to hear about sin and judgment and righteousness. So long as we speak of sin and hell and proclaim that Jesus is the only way, there is the court of public opinion will always bang its gavel and say, bigot, unloving, cast them out. But if we hold to the reality of that coming day by faith, if we cling to the truth that Christ will reward all who serve Him faithfully, we will not be deterred. We won't. Do you want to be bold? Of course you do. Bold Christians walk by faith not by sight. We look to the past where Jesus Christ was raised from the dead for us. We look to the future where we will be raised. We look to the future where we will have new bodies. We look to the future where everything we do will be called into account. And in the present, we walk by faith through light and momentary afflictions. We walk by faith seeing suffering God's way. We walk by faith, not by sight. We need God's grace to do that, don't we? Because sight fills our days. We live in a panoramic 3D world of sight. This is why Sunday gatherings are so crucial. It is not because we need a certain number of people here. It is not because we even need to do our duty. Beyond the fact that God is gloriously worthy of all of our worship, including our obedience to gather together and to worship Him, we need to be reminded that sight is not all there is. In fact, sight is not even primarily what is, but it is the things that we are taught by faith so that we go through the world this way. <laughs> by faith, not by sight. 
by faith. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do long to be bold, not to be known as bold, to be seen as bold, to be written about as bold, to be remembered as bold, but to be bold for the sake of the glory of Jesus Christ, for the sake of His name among the nations, for the sake of His name in our families, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods. We want to be bold because we want to please You. We want to glorify You. And we pray, God, that You will give us grace to remember these things, these things that faith embraces. And as we embrace them by faith, increase our boldness. Help us to rest in the gospel of Jesus Christ, knowing our acceptance is based on His merit and His sacrifice and His resurrection and not us. And the fact that we will be raised, the last day is guaranteed because of that day. Give us grace so that by faith we will work for your glory, not for our own names or for our own sakes, but for your glory. Give us grace so that we can see the sufferings of life as you do. Light, momentary, and preparing a weight of glory we can't even imagine. By grace, give us faith to groan, to not be settled here, to not be satisfied with how things are in this world, but to long for the day, to call out with the Scriptures, even so, come, Lord Jesus. And give us faith so that in the rest of this day and in the days to come, we will make it our ambition to please you in all things. Give us grace that we might walk by faith and not by sight. Make us a church that walks by faith, not by sight. And so we pray that that will be, that you will hear us, you will answer us, you will make us obedient, and that the grace of Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit will be with us. In Jesus' name, amen.